So um, my family and I were at the wharf last night, that lovely revitalized part of the city in Southwest, entertaining a out-of-town guest. And as I walked around and took in the sights, I thought, what a wonderful segue for me to tomorrow morning when I'll have the honor and pleasure of introducing Mayor Williams. Um, I say that because I've been in Washington long enough to remember the bad old days when the city was known for crime and corruption and urban blight, and, tonight, and today it's this thriving metropolis that's attracting throngs of visitors and residents from all over the country and all over the world. It took a long time, and there are lots of people who are responsible for it, but I think it's fair to say if there's one person who's more responsible than anybody else for turning the city around and putting it on the path that it's on today uh, toward greatness, that one person is our speaker this morning, Mayor Williams. He was the mayor of our city, as we know, from 1999 to 2007. Currently, he's the CEO and the president of the Federal City Council, which is a very important organization, which serves as a catalyst for progress here in Washington, focusing the creative and administrative talents of our business and professional leaders. Uh, he is a graduate of Yale College. He has a master's in public policy from uh, the Kennedy School at Harvard, and he's a graduate of the Harvard Law School. With that, please join me in welcoming former mayor Anthony Williams. Thank you, everybody. So what I want to do is just uh, give you a little bit of overview from my point of view of how the city got to where it is, and my role in it, my perspective, which is presumably why you wanted me to talk. So I'll give you my perspective on how we got here and uh, kind of uh, my understanding of how we ought to proceed from here. And then uh, we'll have some time for some questions and answers. Uh, but appreciate St. John's having me here. I, I've spoken here as a mayor, I think, before. I know I've been here a number of different times. Do great work in our community, great part of our nation's capital. So I really am honored to be able to talk to you this morning. Uh, you know, I, my uh, perspective on the city and my time as mayor was shaped uh, by, as you would imagine, my parents. I was adopted into a loving home. I always say that. I wouldn't uh, be where I am today without uh, certainly the civil rights movement, uh, without uh, government doing the right things at the right time. I mean, I was certainly supported by everything from Pell Grants to the GI Bill, uh, and also uh, by loving parents. Uh, my parents, Virginia and uh, Lewis, adopted me into our home out in LA. Uh, I was in a foster care situation. I found recently from DNA that my mother was from Turkey, which is really kind of hard to get my arms around, you know, because I didn't, I never wanted to find my birth parents. I'm not, as you'll find in a second, you'll find out why. I'll tell you about my adopted dad, and you'll find out why I'm not, why I am the way I am. But uh, I was never uh, one of these people on TV, one, you know, I want to go and find my birth parents, and I'm searching for my, or I'm not, you know, I'm not all into that. But I found, I thought it would be interesting to find out when both of my parents, adopted parents, died, they, find, they, they both have now gone on to greater glory. Uh, they were both great people. So I f figured I'd find out my DNA. I figured, you know, my birth mother was from Burbank or something. Well, it turns out she's from, like, Turkey. So that's like, a, to me, it's like a different civilization, different religion. You know, it's just a lot, you know, it's hard to get around. But, you know, my parents raised us in an ecumenical home because my mother uh, was, uh, many of you know my mother, she was a very, very outgoing person. She had a beautiful voice. She sang in opera choruses, community operas with community orchestras. She sang at uh, weddings, bar mitzvahs, churches, synagogues all over L.A. 
to help make a living for our family. And she raised us in an ecumenical home. So, for example, I went to a Catholic grade school. I went to a Jesuit high school. So I had an ecumenical background, too. So we had a you know, broad way of looking at things. Uh, my dad was a captain in World War II. He had two bronze stars in World War II. You know, be African-American to be a captain in World War II, to have two bronze stars and another medal, I forget. It was really, I figure because of discrimination, one of those or two of those medals were discounted. My dad was an unbelievably tough guy. He never complained. He never gave up. Uh, you know, that whole nationals thing. He was always there in the fight, always supporting his family. I got a lot of that determination from him. So I got an embrace, embracing uh, love of people, even though I don't really show it emotionally, from my mom and a real determination to just hang in there uh, from my dad. So you would imagine as mayor, this kind of determination just to go through the gauntlet, not complain, is really good training. Uh, the bad training I got from my dad was because he was sent from St. Paul, Minnesota, he made, I'm estimating, maybe about five or six phone calls his entire life because he wasn't a very talkative person, so he wasn't chit-chatting. My mother made up for that, but going into politics where you don't really like talking on the phone is not a skill, and not being the most gregarious person is not really a skill, but in general, I think I brought the right package to the right situation at the right time. What was the situation in D.C., as I always tell people? You know, uh, uh, two different levels broadly. One way of looking at D.C. was there are different uh, kind of trends in history that D.C. is still facing, is always faced. So there's all the fight from, uh, for freedom from slavery, emancipation, Abraham Lincoln, uh, collapse of Reconstruction, fight for civil rights 100 years later, fight for economic empowerment, fight for inclusion. That's the story of D.C., the story of D.C., the story of the fight for full representation. We all know that. Hamilton and Jefferson made a deal to locate the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Uh, they addressed the issue of uh, 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 satisfying the Revolutionary War debt, the issue of slavery, the issue of, you know, between North and South on a point of navigation. They solved all those issues. They didn't solve the issue of rights of the people who live in D.C., because as all of, many of you probably know, because you're all very learned people, you know, the Capitol was in, was in Philadelphia, and there was a run on the Capitol after the Revolutionary War, because up until World War II, worldwide, countries didn't take care of their, revolution, their war veterans in general. So, true to form, the Revolutionary War veterans made a run on the Capitol. The Congress called the state of Pennsylvania and asked for help, State of Pennsylvania said, well, we actually agree with the war veterans. So Congress had to get up. You're a Yaley. You would appreciate the, just the devastation of this. The Congress had to get up and move to Princeton. Can you imagine? That's a Yale joke. So anyway, so they moved. <laughs> but anyway, so they moved to Princeton, and they decided when they come to Washington, D.C., in order to immunize and insulate the Congress from all the local issues in their point, in the point of the capital, they would put all of the all of the governance of the nation's capital under Article One. But Madison noted that when we're doing that, we're solving one problem, but we're also disenfranchising all these people who live in the capital. So, along with a fight for emancipation, 
The fight for, is the fight for representation. There's also the fight in Washington, D.C., which is an ongoing fight in cities around the country, and that is uh, to enter into a vibrant uh, rebirth of the American city. So if you look at the American city, you had the tremendous growth of the American city. Take St. Louis, you had tremendous growth up until World War uh, II, end of World War II. After World War II, you had decline of the American city, the second stage of the American city. So Detroit, from over 2 million in population to whatever Detroit is now, what, seven, 800,000? A uh, city like St. Louis, 900,000, maybe you're pushing 350,000 now. This out-migration of the American city, racial distancing, bad governance, crime, bad schools, all these things feeding on one another create tremendous hemorrhaging of people and population and economics in cities across the country, including Washington, D.C. This was the second stage of the American city. When I came to Washington, D.C., we were bumping along the bottom, in my opinion, of this second stage. Now, the, other, the final cycle that I realized uh, when I became mayor, and the, re and the thing, a lot of me becoming mayor was a blazing saddles thing because I kind of came into town, and everybody's like, who's that? And nobody really took me seriously. And before they kind of figured out what was going on, I was CFO, and then I was mayor. But I knew a lot about cities, and I won't belabor all the history, but I had studied cities. I'd been an honor student. I had a lot of great teachers. I'd worked in uh, some great organizations in cities around the country for some great people. So when I came to Washington, D.C., I knew about management. I knew about cities. I knew what I was looking at, right, from an intellectual, not just a political point of view. Because the final thing I looked at was we were scraping bottom, but I saw tremendous potential in the city. And one of the potentials I saw after I became mayor was, and nobody was paying attention, so, you know, I just filled in the breach, is we had three, well, there were two plans for Washington, D.C. The first plan was the L'Enfant plan. And, you know, we're sitting here on Lafayette Square, and we're in the middle of the evil pentagram and the whole Masonic thing. I'm, I, you know, I don't believe in all that. But I do believe that there was a special vision behind the first plan for Washington, D.C. that I thought was very ennobling because the vision behind Washington, D.C., and there's now a book that, there was a, a review of a book in the Wall Street Journal two or three uh, weeks ago. I forget the name of the book, sorry, but I, I can send it to you if you get, give me your name. And it's about uh, Versailles and the relationship of Versailles and Washington and city form and inspiration behind city form. And it really underscores this point I've been making, and none of the official architects really challenged me, so I keep making it. People say that Washington, D.C. was founded on the inspiration of the Paris we see today, but all of you know this cannot be true because the Paris we see today was the work of a guy named Baron Ausman in the mid-19th century. So, of course, Washington, D.C. in 1800 couldn't be inspired by Paris in the mid-19th century, no. I believe that L'Enfant was looking at a set, a design, an inspirational design for a city, and he was looking at Versailles. And the people in Versailles, in the quarters, you know, that sweep from Versailles and the Sun King, they were looking at the Forbidden City. So the monarch, right, in this center of stability, right, in power in this world of disorder, right, was Forbidden City in Versailles. But the powerful thing about the founders in Washington, D.C., notwithstanding slavery, notwithstanding the fact that we didn't have full representation, <clears throat> 
was when they designed Washington, D.C., they were looking at a new center of this whole empire of liberty, and the center of this new empire of liberty, the state streets that were sweeping up out from the Capitol and the whole design of the original diamond with the Capitol in the center was to show the power of the people, not the power of a king. So Washington, D.C., in this first design, was supposed to be a living, breathing example of democracy in the world. Now, now we say, yeah, what? But democracy in 1800 was a big deal, right? So it was a great, bold, ennobling vision. And then in 1900, when we drive around the mall and we drive around the monuments, we're looking at the work of Macmillan, right? And Senator Macmillan and the Parks and Recreation, the Macmillan Plan and ordering the mall. This was a whole part of the uh, Daniel Burnham and the City Beautiful Movement. So it's why the mall is more like a park than a real city. It was this whole idea of the city beautiful. Well, that's the Macmillan plan. So go 100 years later, I'm saying, you know, hey, I'm mayor and it's 1900. The city's a mess. Nobody's paying attention. I'm going to set out a plan for the next century in Washington, D.C. And the plan for the next century in Washington, D.C. is going to be based on restoring in Washington, D.C., the public realm. Architects talk about the public realm. They mean, you know, the, stays, the space between uh, the private on, for example, a building like the Hay Adams and the Hay Adams is sitting there and then you have the sidewalk and all that public space and this intersection between the public and the private. Architects talk about the public realm. To me, I considered my mission to restore the public realm, but I define the public realm more broadly. In my mind, I define the public realm as community space. So we would restore the public realm and restore the community. What were the cornerstone, what are the cornerstones, is, my grammar teacher would slap me, there can't be cornerstones. What was the centerpiece of the public realm? The centerpiece of the public realm was public trust, public stewardship, public accountability. So public accountability and public trust is we're going to leave things better for the next generation. We're going to pay our bills on time. That doesn't sound very exciting, but if you're trying to rebuild a community, that's important, especially for a government. Full faith and credit, that's important for a government. You know, when uh, mayors around uh, <clears throat> the world now, you know, they ask me, well, you know, what do I need to do to get my city going? I'm going to have all these incentives to bring business. I'm going to do yada, yada, yada. And I say, the first order of business, it doesn't sound very exciting that you have to do is establish settled expectations. Now, doesn't that sound exciting? No, it doesn't, but it's very, very important. Settled expectations means if I have a community in a capitalist system, there are always going to be people lined up. If I'm in the right place, right, and I have the right attributes to my community, there are going to be people lined up to try to invest in my community. All I have to do to get the initial pioneer investors to come on in is to show them that things aren't going to get any worse. I don't have to tell them that in five weeks things are going to be miraculously better. All I have to do to get the virtuous cycle going is just establish, right, to the world that things will not get worse. So for, I think in Washington, D.C., uh, two years ahead of time, uh, getting a clean audit and having a surplus and uh, relinquishing the control board two years ahead of time sent a powerful message to the world in terms of settled expectations. People around the world could say, oh, wow, I may still wait eight years at the DMV, but it won't be nine years now, right? <laughs> so we know that it's like a lady when I was, 
getting ready to leave office, she was at a meeting like this, and she stood up indignant. And I was, you know, after eight years, I was used to indignant people, and she stood up indignant, you know, and she had a chip on her shoulder. She said, Mayor, you know, I went to this agency, and I went to the counter, and the person told me one thing. And then I went to the website, and the website told me another thing. And then I got on the phone, and the person told me a third thing. And I said, well, ma'am, we're working on this, yada, yada, blah, 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 blah. But I'm thinking to myself, this is like the settled expectations. You know, this is progress because when I came into office, nobody came to the counter, nobody answered the phone, and we didn't have a website. So at least, <laughs> you know, at least now we have some things to try to reconcile, you know. So that's settled expectations. And then the next stage is public safety. Do I feel safe in the community? So for us, that was rebuilding the police department. And then my successor, God bless him, appointed Kathy Lanier, who built on that with great community policing and great interaction. Do you know that Kathy Lanier, the chief, would visit victim, every victim of a homicide in DC? She was a great chief. We had Chief Ramsey, a great chief, another great chief, public safety. I mentioned public services. <clears throat> said to everybody in Washington, to uh, everybody in the DC government, find me the 20 operators, I don't care what agency they're in, who an actually answer the phone, we're gonna put them in one building, we're gonna route all the calls to one building with these 20 people. And they'll actually answer the phone. Now, they're gonna answer the phone, I'm not sure the agency will do anything yet, but at least someone is answering the phone. Again, that's like settled expectations. And so moving around the cycle all the way now through uh, successive mayor's public education, you create a virtuous cycle, re begin restoring the public realm, and things are better. Now, people will say, well, what about the, the, uh, uh, the positives? The positives, you go from junk bond rating to positive to AAA. You go from $500 million in debt to a billion seven surplus. You go from uh, a city that was considered a, a disgrace to one of the uh, top investment centers in the world. You know, this is really, really progress. Uh, bringing, <clears throat> when I, uh, you probably all have not heard it. You probably haven't gone and looked for it. But uh, I gave a, uh, my second inaugural speech. I wouldn't put it up there with Lincoln's, but it, <laughs> but no, I gave this, I gave my second inaugural speech and everybody was asleep, and I said, during my speech, I said, I'm committing to 100,000 new people in Washington, D.C. Nobody was paying attention. Like, they weren't paying attention with the whole planning thing. So, 100,000 new people in Washington, D.C. Why did I say 100,000 new people in Washington, D.C.? Because we don't have full representation. Our tax system's contorted. We don't really get a lot immediately from sales tax that we worked on that. We don't get a lot immediately from property tax that we worked on that where we really could really see a big gain in the fortunes of the district and this was building and expanding our income tax and the way to expand our income tax was to get, to, was to get more people living in Washington, D.C. And now we've gone through 100,000 people in terms of new people in Washington, D.C. So this is all good, I would argue this investment in D.C. has been good because the, all, the delta in new dollars that have come to D.C. have overwhelmingly gone to education, to libraries, to public <coughs> recreation, to human services. Only a small part has gone to tax reduction, to uh, uh, upper income individuals in the district. So this notion that you know, all of this has been bad is not true. 
another aspect of gentrification that I, or not gentrification, but I would say new investment that has been good is a lot of times when I have uh, breakfast with people, I have breakfast with people over in the Hay Adams, I take the bus from where I live over on H, 3rd and 8th Street, and I find it amazing now that the bus over time, there are a mix of incomes and a mix of people on the bus. And I really take cognizance of the single mother, a single mother, a number, you know, that will be on the bus. And then they'll mention when people realize that I'm not the metro inspector and uh, I'm the former mayor, I'll notice that the mother is saying to her kids, oh, that's the former mayor on the bus. I think that's a good thing that these kids now have role models. They didn't have role models before. Mix of incomes in a neighborhood, all the studies show mix of incomes in a neighborhood is a good thing. That said, <clears throat> when we were trying to bring the city back to where it is, we didn't really have a lot of tools. People think that we had a drawer where we could pull out a drawer and say, bring in a company that will do everything, hire everyone in the district without any new residents, you know, solve all these manifold problems I'm talking about. We just didn't have that option. But that said, I believe that we have now, and this is looking at the city for, we do have the tools, and I'll just talk about affordable housing. We do have the tools now to continue economic growth, but to do this economic growth in an inclusionary way. And I will just mention the, the group that I run, the Federal City Council, which was started by the Graham family about 60 years ago as a force for good, not to lobby, but to do, create public good, as an economist would say, in the city. And one of the things we've done now is we've raised about, uh, in conjunction with a firm JBG, we've raised $90 million, uh, affordable housing fund. The long and short of it is to use uh, the dynamics of the market and private philanthropy uh, to go out ahead of the real estate wave and preserve affordable housing before the real estate wave hits. Because what I've done and Mayor Gray's done and Mayor Fenty and Mayor Bowser even, you know, we've all tried to preserve affordability when we're doing these projects, but a lot of these projects are at the crest of the wave in terms of the cost of doing the project. We can go out ahead of the real estate curve and preserve affordability ahead of time. We can get a lot more affordability done uh, in a lot more positive way. Another thing that we're working on is uh, bus uh, is uh, reconfiguring our bus system, not to drive uh, people crazy in their cars because we're shutting off streets, but really to look at how we can use the bus system to connect people in southeast Washington, uh, parts of uh, PG County for that matter to the world of work. All research shows that one of the highest correlations of poverty is lack of transportation and mobility. So another thing that we're doing uh, looking forward, and I can talk about other areas and things we ought to do, but we can maybe do that in questions, questions and answers. But I hope that that gives you a sense of where the city was, where it started, where it is now, and some of the challenges that we have uh, going uh, forward, and I think we can spend the rest of our time taking questions. So thank you all very much. Would you mind explaining a little more the tools you, oh, sorry. Thank you. Would you mind explaining a little more the tools for preserving affordability that the, the district has? I live in Arlington. We're somewhat constrained in some of the tools we have. Could you mind explaining the tools for affordability 
And I think you're seeing around the country uh, uh, a couple things that are happening. Uh, one tool is what's called inclusionary zoning, which is if I'm doing a development, I've got to include in my development so many square feet for affordable housing. I think the good side of that is that in the development itself, the argument is you want a mix of incomes in the development itself. The downside of inclusionary zoning is that if I'm doing a development in uh, Georgetown, let's say, and the cost, per, I'm just making this up, and the cost per, per square foot is 1,000 per square foot, I'm doing affordable housing at, say, 1,000, 1,500 a square foot. If I do affordable housing off-site, I may be able to do, instead of two units, seven units. So, you know, it's a best, it's, you're balancing the need for on-site inclusion with how much bang do we want for a buck. There is something called the Affordable Housing Fund that I've started that still is underway, which is basically uh, when you record a deed, you pay a tax. There's a lot of recording of deeds because a lot of financing and development, so you put a little uh, fee on that. That's generated millions of dollars for affordability. The downside of it is it's a tax. The other downside of it, and I say this as someone who's run the district government, is a lot of the money goes into the district government. It's hard seeing sometimes where it's coming out. So there have been some issues with that. You know, we got a problem with rats in the city. There's still rats in the government. You, know, you never can get rid of them. I mean, good Lord, it just drives me crazy. So uh, it's kind of corruption. It's like rats. You just constantly work and keep them down. Uh, <clears throat> and then you've got these tools that I'm talking about of going out and preserving affordability. On the home ownership side, there's this notion now of shared equity, where essentially a fund, and I'm a uh, moderate income uh, home buyer, we will jointly buy the property. The part of the property I buy, say it's 50% of the property I buy initially, the underwriting's all tight. I'm doing loan to value and my ability to pay is all tight. I'm buying 50% of the property. Then, at, then down the road, you, the co-owner, allow me to take on the remainder of the property, so I'm able to get property that's otherwise not affordable uh, in an accessible way without, like we did pre-Great Recession, undermining, right, uh, underwriting, undermining underwriting standards and getting us into a bind. Uh, and then uh, the same thing for rental, what we're doing now where we're using private philanthropy and uh, uh, support from banks uh, to go and buy uh, housing uh, and keep it affordable for 20 years on a rental basis, too. I personally, our view, my view, and it happens to be the view of the you know, Federal City Council, is we would like to see that site uh, go back uh, to the district. You know, one of the things I was able to do with President Bush, it's got a huge chunk of land from the federal government for the district to manage. So a lot of that area around uh, RFK is now in the district's hands. We just got to kind of get to do something with it, but it, you know, always takes time. But the RFK site, we'd like to see come back to the district, what's called fee simple. We actually get ownership of the land. The proposal now is that we would actually buy the land from the federal government at its value net uh, the contamination on the site that there is, uh, remediation of the site, uh, demolition on the site, which make it a very, you know, which would make it, you know, affordable for the district. 
we're agnostic as to whether a football team should come to the site. We're, we don't, we're not into the whole thing with a football team. I could give you my personal views, but that's what we, we think, and that's, yeah. I think, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, Washington National site uh, was actually part of uh, one of these, I was talking about the uh, 2000 plan. You know, uh, the 2000 plan was uh, focused on uh, four things. So if you look at 14th Street or 8th Street down near the Marine Barracks or uh, H Street where I live are examples of, we spent a lot of time on uh, great streets because that's the core of rebuilding a city. Then you'll notice a lot of neighborhoods and neighborhoods that have come back with libraries and parks and this and that. Neighborhoods are a big part of the city. My successor, God bless him, Adrian Fenty, and the schools, big, big part of neighborhoods in the city. And then a lot of time on the downtown, you know, the whole area around uh, Verizon Center. We did a TIFF for that whole uh, gallery uh, marketplace around Verizon Center, and everybody said we were crazy. We were bankrupting the city. It turned out beautifully. And then last but not least, you know, every city has uh, some signature that really identifies that city uniquely. And for us, we felt it was a confluence of the Potomac, Anacostia Rivers. We had the Anacostia Waterfront Initiative. And one of the things that was really excited, exciting about Jerry Reinsdorf uh, standing up for us with baseball and pitching that site to the powers that be in baseball was it fit beautifully into our Anacostia Waterfront Initiative. And uh, the cleanup uh, of the river part of the initiative has gone beautifully. The development part of the initiative, Southwest Waterfront, the yards, the ballpark, all that stuff, that's gone beautifully. The part that hasn't gone well is the inclusion part. Now, if I could just say as by, by way of advertisement, in order to provide inclusion and in order to provide settled expectations over a series of administrations, uh, we created this thing called the Anacostia Waterfront Corporation, and the idea was that it would be in charge of doing development along the river, and then proceeds from that development would go to, would be plowed back into investment east of the river. So my successor, you know, this happens in politics, and it drives me crazy, is, you know, everybody hates the person before them, and they tear down all that other person's statues and their pictures, so because I had created this corporation, my successor came in and tore it down. Now everybody's saying, well, why, isn't, why aren't proceeds from all this development helping the people who really need it? And I'm saying, don't look at me. I mean, people look at me anyway, and you should look at me. But I mean, I feel it's kind of the irony of irony. It's just that's what was really needed was to see that there was a tension uh, across the river as well. So the baseball is part of that. And I think beating the Dodgers was a big thing because that's like beating Georgia or Alabama and then you're playing the rest of the teams. We've beat the Dodgers. That's a huge deal. So, <laughs> Mayor, can you comment on Amazon and uh, also on the redevelopment as I understand of the golf courses? So one of the projects that we're working on is the uh, Amazon. Uh, we think the district's in a position to uh, benefit from Amazon coming to the Washington region. But one of the things, uh, you know, you were asking me about tools of, of uh, housing development or affordable housing development. One thing I didn't mention that's not very popular in some circles is uh, part of the beautiful original 
it, it's really not part of it, but it's kind of come to be considered part of it. When, the, when uh, they designed the 1800 plan for Washington, D.C., they didn't have in their mind, there wasn't any building height limitation. That came later. But it is kind of part of the kind of spirit of the design of Washington, D.C. So no one would propose that we look at some big, massive change in the building height limitation. Certainly within the old city, like south of Florida Avenue. But I will just say this, there is a relationship, you know, on the margins between density and affordability, right? Because if I've got more FAR that I'm doing on a project, my cost per unit is going down, I'm able to do more affordability. So there's a, there's a relationship between density in the city that we should grapple with and affordability. There's a relationship between density in the city and smart city and climate change. We need, to t we need to have that conversation. Again, I'm not talking about having 80-story buildings, but you know, I don't know, maybe five floors, 10 floors more outside the old city, I think we should consider maybe. I could find more, I, you know, that I'm not really as conversant on, although it's certainly near and dear to me coming out of a foster situation. The question was foster care. What's the I'm sorry, what's the relation? You know, <clears throat> the city is still on track. Uh, back in 1995 when I came around, every single human service uh, agency in the district was under receivership. Can you imagine that? Including child and family services, foster care. So now we're in the process of uh, 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 moving through that, and I think they are making progress in the children and families, but I could get more information about that for you. Mayor Williams, thank you for your remarks. You remind me of Jim Collins' well-known business book, Good to Great. Level five leaders are not about being celebrities, they're about making their organization great, and, and you embodied that in how you approach the city. Yeah, I DC is Patriots, but I like Bill Belichick the way he runs the team. That's my, I think that's the way you do it. You know, you build an organization, not stars, you know. You had to go there, didn't you, with the, uh, I hate the there, there are a few targets of opportunity left. One of them, I think, in the district and around here is trauma and emergency services yeah. and disaster preparedness. Considering we're the heart of the federal government, that's a critical issue, and especially in Southeast D.C., which is a bit of a desert when it comes to access to care. So I'd be interested in your thoughts about how D.C. and its partners, including the federal government, might be able to move the needle in what are still not the best health measures for a population in the United States. Uh, I, you know, the, again, I'm not speaking for the uh, government here. I'm speaking on my own recognizance, you know, and I'm not even speaking for the Federal City Council. Uh, what we did, <clears throat> this really shows the, uh, this is why I, I always tell other politicians, I'm saying you're really too, you're, you're too risk averse, you're too conservative uh, in terms of what your public will commit to doing. If your public believes in you, they'll follow you even if they disagree with you. I think a majority of people disagree with me that we should have closed D.C. general and turned it into a state health plan, but I think it was the right thing to do, and I think we need to do more of that. I think creating, subsidizing another hospital is not the way to go. I think we should take that money and do even better care and provision of preventative, 
neighborhood base, primary care for people you know, who need it. That's my view. And I think that the other thing we ought to be doing much more concretely is working cooperatively with Maryland, particularly in Prince George's County, because we're talking about the same population. You know, when we're building a hospital and they're building a hospital, you know, five miles away is crazy to me. I think we ought to, we ought to I, believe in, I believe in statehood. I believe we ought to have full representation, but I'm a modern person. I think we ought to be flexible about definition of organization and really asking the question, what's going to get us the most mileage to serve our people? That's what I think. So the question was, uh, do I think there's any uh, <clears throat> statehood's going to happen? And what's, what are the prospects of statehood? And the other one was kind of like punch list as mayor. Are there still some things? It's kind of like I was a contractor. Are there still some parts of the house that haven't been done yet? So I'll start with, in terms of fixing the house, use the analogy. Uh, statehood, you know, is a long slog because of the intract. It's become a very partisan issue now. It's just seen as a Democratic-Republican issue. And as it's seen as a Democratic-Republican issue, I think it's going to be very hard. Traditionally, statehood was hard because of the uh, people just thought D.C. was a mess and the whole Marion Barry thing. So that was one. I think there was some racial aspect to it. That was two. Americans really didn't like cities. That was three. And then a Democratic-Republican thing, that was four. I think the first three things are really not on the table in my mind, I think it's the last thing, Democratic, Republican. And I think we need to pay attention to, you know, the Constitution is not a, a completely majoritarian, purely Democratic, you know, Constitution. There are minority protection features in the Constitution. I think we've got to be honest. As an African-American, I'm glad in the previous 30, 40 years there were some anti uh, protections to minorities because, you know, that's why the conservatives were always complaining about you know, the federal government and the Supreme Court because they were protecting minorities. Now it's kind of reversed. We've got to be careful about what we want to get rid of. I think that these quirky aspects to the Constitution have a role. I think that if, because a lot of survey and data analysis has shown this, is that Republicans are much more likely now to win closely contested elections because of the Electoral College. If President Trump were to get reelected and lose, which could definitely happen, four million votes, four and a half million votes, this would put enormous pressure on the Constitution. I think at the Supreme Court, and I think Justice Roberts is sensitive to this, if it's seen as purely partisan, I think it would put enormous pressure on the structure of the Constitution in a not good way. But uh, I don't see this happening anytime soon. And I will say, I think that statehood is a good thing because I think as a, the, in the world, uh, regions compete in the world. They're no longer cities or regions that compete in the world. It's our region and the New York region and the London region and the Frankfurt, you know, these metroplexes are what we're competing on in the world. And I think it'd be better for the DMV to have six senators rather than four. And what Maryland and Virginia would lose in their taxes short term, what they'd gain by having that added voice is to me a no-brainer. 
And I will also say that if we were a state, I don't believe that if we become a state, we should take on all the old obligations we had pre-control board. I think you, we ought to be, we shouldn't try to be a 19th century state, we should try to be a 21st century state. So in other words, I don't think we should have, you know, 18, 20, 25 different elected offices in a district and 18 more bureaucracies, no I don't. But I do think we should have representation. And a couple of things that are left undone, I think we're losing, this is my own view, I'm not speaking for anybody but myself, we're losing a little bit of momentum in the schools. I think we need to push harder on uh, transformation of the regular public schools. We're being too protective of the public schools at the expense of the charter schools, this is my view. But I think the answer is not to snuff, stifle, snuff out whatever the charter schools, it's to push the transformation in the, in the uh, regular uh, public schools and we're losing a little bit of that. The regulatory apparatus in the district I didn't fix it, Adrian didn't fix it, Vince didn't fix it, Muriel didn't fix it, it's still a mess, it needs to be done. DCRA is still a mess. That's where you come to get a permit or a license. This is like, this is like, D, it's like DMV 20 years ago, it's bad. So it, that's an area that I think uh, needs to be fixed. And one area that, big, big area, I mentioned uh, transportation and mobility, but we really need as a community, and we're trying to do this at the Federal City Council, we really need to lean in now because we're doing a better job educating our kids. We, are, we need to do more, but we are doing a better job educating our kids, but we're, they need more help getting all the way through post uh, K to 12, and more, because they don't have the family structure, more valuable apprenticeships in the world of work, and that's what we in the Federal City Council were creating a prototype to try to do. And the Langston Initiative, the last part of this, is this effort by the Federal City Council uh, to revitalize the three golf courses in Washington, Washington D.C. And we've been successful in getting the federal government to actually act on this now. And the idea is that we will revitalize the three golf courses in D.C. And in Langston, we'll do what they did in Atlanta with Eastlake and New Orleans with uh, City View. And we'll use the revitalization of Langston Golf Course as part of a broader effort uh, revitalizing uh, in an inclusive way, I must emphasize, uh, the schools and uh, the neighborhood around Langston Golf Course. Uh, right now, the Federal City Council, we're functioning, it's like we're a three-engine plane. Our three engines are the federal government, the non-governmental sector, and the district government. And right now, in case you've noticed, the federal government is completely out of service, so that engine isn't working. So we're just basically operating on two engines. If the federal government ever woke up and decided to get back involved. President Bush was involved in his own way. President Clinton was involved. I think the sky's the limit. Right now, they're completely clueless. Everyone, please join me.